0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Time to venture into the vault for a classic episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This one originally aired November 13th. 2018. This was our interview with uh, the Emory Professor Dietrich Stout about Stone Age technology.
1: Yeah, this one. This one was a lot of fun. We actually had him in the studio, so uh, no phone call uh, static or anything going on with this one. Uh, he was a, a, a tremendously interesting to chat with, and he even engaged some discussion on 2001: A Space Odyssey, which, of course, was the the, the Vault in, uh, episode that we aired before this one.
0: Yeah. So we hope you enjoy. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we have for you an interview episode, an episode where we sat down and talked to an expert on paleolithic technology. And I'm really excited for you all to hear this one because uh, this conversation was a lot of fun. Stone Age technology is so much more fascinating than you would think. Yeah, because
1: in in looking at it, we're looking really at the the, the roots of, of human invention and innovation. Like where does the entire tree of human technology spring
0: from? Yeah, and how did ancient technology shape us? So this is going to be a conversation with Dr. Dietrich Stout. Uh, Dietrich Stout is an associate professor of anthropology at Emory University where his Paleolithic Technology Laboratory investigates the role of technology in human evolution. Dr. Stout is also Associate Director of Emory's Cross-Disciplinary Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture, which promotes diverse and integrative research into human nature and experience. His research focus on Paleolithic stone toolmaking and brain evolution integrates field research at early Stone Age archaeological sites in Ethiopia, with laboratory and museum research including artifact analysis and experiments experimental replication, functional and structural neuroimaging, behavioral analysis, and psychometric testing. Now, if you want to check out those uh, centers I mentioned, the Paleolithic Technology Laboratory, you can find that at scholarblogs.emory.edu slash stoutlab. And then uh, the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture, you can just go to cmbc.emory.edu. Yeah, this is a super fun uh, interview. I should stress that this was an in
1: studio interview. Yeah, uh, uh, one of a, a couple of interviews we recorded about a month ago, where we said, "Hey, let's let's reach out to some local experts mm-hmm. on some various topics." We don't necessarily we, we enjoy jumping on the phone with uh, with folks, but uh, why not have some uh, some
0: local talent come into the studio? And that's <laughs> what we did here. It was a lot of fun, uh, and I think you will really enjoy it. So I'd say, without any further ado, let's go straight to our conversation with Dietrich Stout. Hey, Dietrich, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Yeah, well, I'm uh, an associate professor of anthropology at Emory University. Uh, I'm also the uh, associate director of the uh, Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture at Emory uh, as well, which is a uh, center that uh, promotes uh, interdisciplinary research on mind, brain, and culture. And those are basically my interests. I come at it from the uh, direction of archaeology in the hope that we can learn something uh, from the past about uh, what made us
0: the way we are today. So how did you first get interested in Stone Age technology?
2: Well, um, it's not something that you typically encounter in most uh, high schools around the country. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when I went to, uh, to college, I really had no idea of the possibilities that were there for anthropology, for the archaeology of human origins. I, I did know that I was uh, interested in the way the human mind works and the nature of human experience. Uh, and I, at the time, I thought that meant that I wanted to be a philosopher. Uh, when I got to school, I, I realized— uh, what I said before, that uh, a lot of the way we can understand how we are today and the nature of human experience is to understand the evolutionary processes uh, that brought us to where we are. Uh, and I had a really great uh, a professor as a, a freshman in a freshman seminar. He told me to take some archaeology classes. I did. And I still I just remember one lecture that uh, my professor gave, and which he was talking about these ancient stone tools and a particular kind uh, called the, the little Valois technique. Um, and he was pointing out that you could see every individual action and. and and blow against the core that this person had done something like 50 or 100,000 years ago. And you could reconstruct what they were thinking, the plans that they made. Uh, And that just struck me as as an incredible window on the past and how our minds became the way that they are today. And that's what got me started on it.
0: And like seeing into a dead person's imagination. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, to be able to capture that. I mean, and now I've worked at sites that are half a million years old where you can literally trace individual decision-making processes. Uh, it's, it's, It's pretty incredible. I actually held a a core at one of these sites, I was looking at it, and I was wondering why they didn't do something that that I would have done with that core, uh, that piece of rock, and I twisted it around to look at where I was thinking about it and I saw that they actually had tried what oh. I was thinking, but it didn't work. So uh, both of us made the same mistake, separated by half a million years.
0: Oh, that's almost a little spooky.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so obviously we know that the, the Stone Age means uh, stone tools, but what— As an expert in the area, what does the Stone Age mean to you? What do you think about when when this age is conjured?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, I think really of the the time period uh, for which we have – evidence of human behavior in the forms of archaeology, but extending way back into the past so that we have information, but it's also an evolutionary time depth. Uh, you know, we're talking millions of years, more than three million years at this point of, of, of time. Uh, so that's what gets me excited about the Stone Age. Uh, and of course, you know, it's called the Stone Age for a reason. Most of what we have are the best evidences of stone tools uh, for behavior. Um, so that's what I have focused on.
0: And when you think about the very beginning of the Paleolithic, obviously we're talking about hominid ancestors then but not, not homo sapiens, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, w- when those organisms were alive, when, when they were trying to survive and, and stone tools began to play a role in their lives, what was that role? What was the earliest role you think stone tools played in, in these organisms' survival yeah, well, I
2: should say at the outset there's a lot of things we don't really know with any great certainty about mm-hmm. the earliest uh, Paleolithic. Uh, I think that there is strong evidence that uh, some of the earlier tools were used for, uh, for butchery of animals because you can recover uh, uh, actual cut marks on bones when somebody accidentally nicked a bone. Uh, as they were butchering an animal. And so that's a direct evidence. Now, what else they were used for is much harder to say because the plant materials, all those things are gone. So there's very limited evidence of that. And it's only in the past couple of years that that it's been reported a much earlier site. Uh, We used to think the earliest uh, stone tools were uh, two and a half million years old. I've worked at some of those sites. Uh, But now they go back to 3.3 million years. And we as yet have Very little evidence of what they might have done with those tools. Uh, Hopefully, in the next few years, there'll be the kinds of evidence that I was talking about, uh, but it's just not there yet. So uh, a lot of unknowns. If I had to say these things are cutting tools, and the most important thing probably for early humans to be able to cut was animal flesh uh, to access that, but uh, they could have used them for a lot of other things, including making other tools— Uh, one of the great things about having a cutting edge is your ability to shape other tools, for instance, in wood. If you have a knife in the form of a stone flake, you can make a spear, you can make a digging stick. Again, though, the wood's not there anymore. Hmm. So if they did that, we have a hard time knowing for sure.
0: And when you mentioned those dates a minute ago, that's referring to uh, – is that, that modified stone tools? We're not talking about like found stone tools. No, and in fact, it would be nearly impossible to
2: identify and differentiate a found stone tool from a rock. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at this point. Um, so that's – right. we know chimpanzees use rocks as tools. Um right. So it, it's – you know, likely that uh, our very early ancestors did. Um, But, uh, yeah, by by 3.3, we have evidence of them actually fracturing rock on purpose in a controlled way uh, to produce cutting edges. And that's something that we can definitively separate from a natural process, so we know it it occurred at that point.
1: Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but are there there broad stroke um, uh, classifications for the different uh, levels of... uh tool creation? Like, I want to say it's something like nature fact, artifact, etc. Uh, could, could you walk our listeners through that?
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, of course you could have uh, unmodified uh, rocks uh, used as tools, for instance, to crack open a nut as, uh, as chimpanzees and some monkeys, uh, macaque monkeys, do that as well. Um, and that's a tool, you know, and it's a stone tool. <laughs> um, but uh, what we see by... million years is the actual modification of the rock on purpose in order to make a different kind of tool. Uh, And uh, that's generally a process simply of fracturing the rock to produce sharp shards or flakes of stone uh, that then become knives. Um, And so that's— Loosely called like mode one, Uh, the most well-known industry that does that is the old one named after Olduvai Gorge, where uh, Marion Lewis Leakey worked, Uh, and that's a very simple form of stone tool making. Uh, It does require quite a bit of uh, coordination. It's not easy to break rocks. they're hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to hit them just right and uh, with a lot of force. Um, but it's pretty conceptually simple. You know, you're not going to really make flakes. Um, and then after that, you've got what variously is called like mode two or loosely called Acheulean after a site where it was first described in Europe. Is the manufacturer of these things that archaeologists call hand axes. And that's where you're not just shattering the rock into flakes but you're actually shaping the rock to make a tool um, the classic tool from this sort of stage or, or time period is uh, uh, the hand axe um, which would be a, a flat rock um, with uh, a cutting edge most of the way around the perimeter and a tip at one end uh, can be good again we think for a large animal butchery Uh, And so that's where you've moved then to actually having the intention, having a goal in mind, and the techniques, the control over the stone that's required is more. Um, uh, Following that, you have what we call prepared core uh, technologies in which you shape the rock in a careful way so that you can remove one final piece that's already pre-shaped the way you want it to be. Uh, And then you can do that over and over again so it becomes a very efficient way. Of making tools and then there's all sorts of variations on that um, and that's the point in which we think there's a big change that they start actually putting these things on sticks for instance on okay. hafting right so you have composite tools and you have all sorts of other techniques and materials that then enter the process and things become
0: much more complex yeah. so you mentioned the hand axe i'm interested to know a little bit more about that uh- I I may be mistaken, but there there have been identified, I think, different schools of hand axe construction. Is that right?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, there are different ways of making something that we call a hand axe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, we also I would be very careful about that. We should always remember that when we call something a hand axe, that's a name that we came up with to describe right. a bunch of things that we think are all similar to each other. It mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily map onto what anybody was thinking in the past or whether they knew each other or, or whatever. Um, so it's a tool, but we have to be careful about it. You put a name on something you think you understand it. Uh, but yeah, so th- as I mentioned, a uh, hand axe has a particular form. There's a lot of different ways you could achieve that and a lot of different starting points. For instance, uh, I might start Start with just a big rock, and then shape that rock into a pointed, thin hand axe. Uh, you know, or I could start with an even larger rock, and then I knock off a giant flake. You know, more than uh, more than ten centimeters long is generally the cutoff. and that's almost already what I need. You know, it's got a big uh, cutting edge all the way around the edge, and then I shape that flake just a little bit, right? And that's a very different way of making a tool that, in the end probably has a similar function and looks quite similar. And then there's all sorts of different sub-variants of ways of doing that. Uh, So that's what I think when you're talking about different schools is these different methods of making uh, the hand axis. Now there's there's a raging debate over what the variation actually means. You know the the sort of naive assumption early on was every time you find a different way of doing something that's a different quote culture even mm-hmm. though we don't really know what we mean by that term at that point. Uh, you know now there's you know people saying that well these are just uh, uh, recurring rediscoveries of uh, simple solutions to the same kind of problems. They don't necessarily imply any sort of cultural continuity or contact between people. There's even been suggestions that there was some kind of large genetic component to the way that people made these these hand axes. So now it's up for debate, but the variation is what we we study to try to understand what was going on in the past. That's where we have a sort of an insight into what was, what was happening.
0: Well, I was definitely going to ask you the naive question about whether that's uh, a result of culture. But is there – so if we don't make that assumption that the different forms or shapes or approaches to hand axes are necessarily the result of cultural traditions or cultural contact, is there anything – that you think looking at tools like this, Stone Age tools, could possibly tell us about the culture of of the creatures that made them?
2: Yeah, and so this is where we have to get into the sort of uh, stuff that you can learn through uh, experimental archaeology. For instance, uh, how difficult is it to uh, discover and use particular techniques? Uh, You know, so— you know if there if there's two people that do something the same way if it's an obvious answer then there's no reason to think they learned it from each other but if it's this really sort of obscure and 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 hard to learn technique that they share then it's much more likely that they learned it from each other so i mean so there's this thing uh, in in the Acheulean a uh, sort of a, a a geographic patterning um to where you have uh far fewer hand axes uh, in East Asia than you do in Africa and Western Asia and Europe. And also, none of them really appear to be as refined as some of the, the nicest examples from, from further west. Um, and so people have debated for a long time what this ge- geographical patterning means. And, and I, I tend to interpret it, you know, as in terms of there are some techniques that are pretty hard to discover on your own and some that are easy, you know. And so you have a lot of reinvention of sort of easy hand axe making here, there, and the other place, you know, but uh, these particular uh, advanced techniques may only have been invented once or twice or a couple times, and so their geographic spread is more restricted. So that's sort of the way that you make a relationship between understanding the way that you actually make the tools and then how they might spread through ancient populations.
0: So, you mentioned experimental archaeology. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people probably when they think about the data collection part of archaeology, they probably think primarily about digging um, but but tell us a little bit about what experimental archaeology means and what 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 kind of things it has helped us understand that we couldn't understand just from looking at actual artifacts.
2: Yeah, well, you know, what you can understand from just looking at the artifact is actually a bit limited, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the, these things they don't they don't come out of the the ground with with labels on them. Uh uh you know I I like to do this when I give a presentation. I show a picture of uh, of a table full of uh, a bunch of old one stone tools. and say, like, okay, now what does this tell us? Uh, (laughs) And most people, you know, you can't even tell that they're anything other than just rocks if you're not used to looking at them. Uh, So what we have to do to understand what these tools that we dig up can actually tell us is uh, uh, basically experimental archaeology. We use analogies. We try to learn how to make them ourselves, and then you can manipulate, uh, well, if I make it this way, then it looks like that if I make it this way it looks like that if I use it this way this happens to it Um, so then we we make these analogies these sort of inferential arguments that processes we can observe and manipulate experimentally now are the same ones that produce the same effects in the past Uh, I mean if you think about it we do this you know anytime even in more recent time periods when you look at an artifact I mean you're making an analogy with something you're familiar with usually Even if it's just implicit, you know, oh, obviously um, this is a sword. You know, I've seen things like that before. Now, you don't really know that you're right, but it's similar enough to things with which you're familiar that that, that's, you know, that's reasonable. When you dig up something from two and a half million years ago, you've got nothing to go on, right? So we have to actually do some of this work to establish robust or strong analogies uh, that we can use.
1: Now, you've mentioned your own um, uh, experiences uh, creating stone tools. How long does it take you to create a, a, a hand axe? Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, it takes me maybe half an hour. I'm a little bit slow <laughs> with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, depending on how ni- nice you want to make it. And that's already assuming that I'm I'm sitting in my outdoor lab with a pile of rocks right next to me, and mm-hmm. I just start making the thing, you know. If, of course, in uh, prehistory, you would have had to go get the rocks and all these other things take a lot more time. But, yeah, uh, something that's—, that's Quite good at
0: it in twelve to fifteen minutes. You oh, can wow. do it, okay, yeah. So, yeah. so you mentioned that uh, we think a lot of these early stone tools were used in butchering meat. Have you ever had food prepared with stone tools you've made? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs>
2: Myself, uh, yeah, only actually recently one of my colleagues had a, uh, a a pig roast where we used some of the stuff that I had made. Uh, yeah, but back in, uh, in in graduate school, I mean it's quite common uh, in these labs and places where people do this sort of work to have the occasional animal roast where you, you <laughs> use it. Uh, and and you, you learn things like, you know, that uh, obsidian – um, is really sharp and great, but it also crumbles and leaves little bits of like glassy kind of crunchy oh. stuff. And yeah, it's, you know, not, not so great. I like flint
0: better. <laughs> <laughs> so do we find uh, do we find little grains of obsidian in ancient teeth? I'm not aware, um,
2: you know, there's always, I'm not well-versed in later prehistory, and so there's Mm a possibility there's something out there about that. I'm not aware of them actually getting any uh, dental wear from the stone tools. Of course, you get very similar-looking dental wear when you you eat, uh, like, uh, tubers that you dug out of sandy ground, so Mm -hmm. it'd be be hard. You do get cut marks on teeth, which is very interesting, because uh, a way commonly to eat things, if you don't use silverware or chopsticks or anything like that, is you hold it up to your mouth, you clench it in your teeth, and you cut away from from there so you're mm-hmm. cutting right next to your mouth and occasionally Oof. they did hit their teeth oh. um, and so you get these little little cut marks on the front teeth oh, um, and, and fascinatingly <laughs> sorry yeah a lot of <laughs> things we do are gross but uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, cool things you can actually infer which hand was used hmm. because there is a you know it's sort of an ergonomics you're slicing down and in, in, in one direction so you can tell and so people have used that to identify early examples of predominantly right-handed populations See, wow. even the gross stuff, there's always something
1: you can, you can get out of it. Oh, no, we encourage you to mention all the gross stuff. We're not, we don't shy away from that here. Yeah. So how is the study of modern uh, stone tool users, uh, such, a, such as a, a stone tool users in uh, New Guinea, uh, how, how has this informed our understanding of ancient stone tool use?
2: Basically, the the whole goal of experimental archaeology is to uh, generate analogies that we can observe in the modern day uh, to understand the past. Um, One of the things we have to be careful about, though, is that when you design experiments and you control things, you build in a lot of your own assumptions, even if you're not aware of them, about how things are done or why things are done and so forth. You're also dealing with a very artificial uh, environment in the lab without any social context or anything like that. Um, So another source of analogy, um, that you can use uh, to understand the past is uh, ethnographic observation. Um, and by that, I would stress it's, you you can include also people, for instance, in the United States that do this as a hobby. There's a community there's things we can learn from them I was lucky enough to uh, to visit some uh, modern toolmakers in New Guinea that are part of a different uh, tradition uh, uh, back in 1999 I was there um, and one of the things that, that that just broadens the number of different examples of ways to do things um, that we can use to understand the past um, and one of the one of the really cool things about it was I was expecting this to be a very uh, you know very foreign experience, experience to be in the highlands of New Guinea and but once we got to the stone tools, they talked about a lot of the same things that I, as an archaeologist, was already used for. They had names for the, for the same kinds of features of the stone tools. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, so there was a real common ground there because we were all based on things that happen when you try to break stone in a controlled way. And that's very validating for an archaeologist because it means we can expect that even moving then to the total unknown of the past, there's going to be these constants that shaped human behavior. And if we can understand them today, it looks like they affect different people from very different cultural backgrounds in similar ways. And so, so that's very validating. Um, the other thing that was really uh, exciting there is, is just how they incorporated uh, stone toolmaking into their own particular cultural and social context, uh, um, which obviously if you study hobbyists in uh, the industrialized West is one context, but this was a, a horticultural context and the way they had a, a, a sort of a system of apprenticeship for learning this and the, just the amount of time uh, that it takes to become an expert in the, they had a particularly, you know, advanced kind of tool making. Um, but the, the, the sheer effort and the, the social values they attached to uh, sticking with it and practicing the support they provided for learning
1: that way, I, th-
2: I found that to be all very uh, inspirational um, for my own research
1: so in 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 dealing with the the stone tool makers in New guinea um and I'm assuming there was a there was a language barrier there yes a translator uh, yeah. what was how did the, did that reveal anything or back up anything that you any preexisting thoughts about the effects of tool use and tool making on language and uh and, and the origins of language
2: yeah well i i I think it was uh There's there's been an idea for for some time, um, which we're increasingly articulating, that uh, uh, one of the things that may have led to the evolution of language in terms of an evolutionary pressure favoring language evolution is is the need to be able to teach each other, uh, and particularly the ability to teach people that you're related to, because then you get sort of the genetic benefit and all that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, And in in New Guinea, it was really uh, uh, striking the amount of social support um, in very, ways uh, that was provided for people learning um, uh, I found that very informative so of course language you know talking actually, do this don't do that or we call this this you know and, and um also, your use of language to tell stories, um, which establishes you know, sort of these cultural norms. They tell a story about someone who is a great toolmaker because he spent all of his time practicing and he neglected his fields and didn't talk to his wife and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that the socializing that they do, they sit together and it, it makes it fun. Um, all of these things are really important to learning something that's very frustrating and difficult. Um, you know, maybe you can think of analogies in your own experience. Uh, and so that that was really, really cool. And then just the uh, – uh, also all of the gesturing, uh, the pointing, and just the context of having particular places where you do things. Uh, you know, this is where we go to get the, uh, the the rocks. This is where we all sit down and make tools together. There was a structure. So there was so much about what they were doing socially that resulted in the, 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 the sustaining of this technology. And I, I thought – You know, obviously you can't just project that into a particular past context, but we need to expand our thinking broadly to think about these other dimensions that may be implied by some of the ancient stone tools
1: that we find.
0: Okay, time to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more of our conversation. All right, we're back. Let's jump back in. Now, obviously this is a different question from uh, how... The crafting of stone tools might have changed our neuroanatomy over time, but I wonder: does making stone tools just change the way you, in your life, think about your relationship with the earth? Like, do you uh, do you find yourself out walking and looking down and saying, "Oh, there's a good one"? No, that's not a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, now, you, I mean, particularly if you've been doing it a
2: lot recently, you can't see a rock without picturing it breaking. You know, <laughs> it's uh, uh and and of course, just doing being an archaeologist does that uh, too. Um, you know, I'm always looking at little pebbles and uh, my wife will catch me looking at the landscaping, you know, and like, oh, that would be a good hammerstone or something like that, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, it does influence uh, uh, some of the resources that you're aware of that are really not particularly relevant for most people uh, in their daily lives, but were once uh, incredibly central.
0: Well, I think about ways that that, that type of thinking um – Can take on more complex kind of mental dimensions. Like I think about the way when I go shopping, uh, if I'm like picking out produce to cook with, I can see like a good fresh piece of produce and I attribute moral goodness to that. And I see like a bad, rotten piece of produce and I attribute moral badness to it. Do, do you do you ever feel inklings of that kind of thing with rocks? Oh, well, there's uh, certainly uh, – I don't know about the moral
2: dimension so much. But there's certainly <laughs> a, 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 a real aesthetic to it. I mean, yeah. uh, you know – uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with Flint, but it's a beautiful rock, and the, uh, uh, the sound that it makes uh, and the way that it breaks when it, when it does what you want it to uh, is just infinitely pleasing. It, it, you know, and, uh, I just got some, uh, some really nice basalt as well, which is a very different kind of, of rock and has different—but also really just uh, aesthetically pleasing, and you get a real pleasure out of, out of working
0: it. Yeah. So you said you, you can hear the difference between a good break and a bad break?
2: Yeah. Yeah. uh, This is a question. I mean, I I think it's important. uh, And I've talked to people who are much more experienced uh, stone toolmakers than I am that that really emphasize that, you know, the sound is important. Uh, And in fact, we're just in the process of developing an online test that people can take where we play the sounds of a a stone flake coming off, and you use a little slider to say how big you think it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, we're trying to see how much information is actually present in those sounds. Uh, I, know, I know that when we're sitting around napping, everybody's looking, napping being a term we used to talk about, stone tool making, uh, not to be confused with falling asleep. But, uh, it's knocking <laughs> the flakes off. Yeah, uh, napping. I don't know if it's German or something. We don't even know where it comes from. But yeah, knocking the flakes off. Uh, anyway, we're sitting around uh, knocking the flakes off and uh, you know, all staring down at what we're doing. And then somebody will strike off a really nice large flake and it makes this flat popping sound. And everybody just looks up over at them and says, wow, <laughs> all right, <you> know? <laughs> uh, So anyway, long story, the, the, uh, uh, we think the sound is uh, is, is probably really important uh, and we're trying to probe that. It, it keeps coming up also in uh, uh, some of the neuroimaging research that we do where we look at uh, uh, stone tool making and we get these uh, activity in areas that are more classically auditory and initially wasn't expecting that. But, of course, it makes sense.
0: Mm, that is interesting and the, the stuff about the, the toolmaking process giving you all these sort of aesthetic values when you look at rocks or when you hear the sounds rocks make, does that um, lead you to draw any connections between the origins of tool crafting and the origins of art? Um.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, in a uh, informal uh, right, sort yeah. of way, um, and 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 you know, people have have written about uh, uh, these ideas, and this is another area sort of of contention, and particularly with the hand axes, uh, they're beautiful, right? They they're very appealing, um, and there's some argument that in fact they are much too beautiful and appealing for no apparent functional benefit. That this must be one of our earliest examples of you know aesthetic. Sense, um, but as I mentioned, it's awfully hard to demonstrate that in a really compelling way to skeptics. Uh, um, it's it's it is hard to say. You do get these glimmerings of in- interesting things, like uh, uh, you know they make a hand axe and there'll be a, a fossil impression of a shell that they leave right in the middle of the center of one of the sides. You know, it's sort of like they showed it off, or was that an accident? Uh, um, it, it it is hard to say um but certainly from our perspective uh uh the symmetry and many of the aspects of these tools are very aesthetically pleasing, so we'd like to speculate that there's some relationship there
1: is is there any indication with any of the any particular hand uh, axes that are particularly uh beautiful to modernize that they were in any way um, uh, merely ritualistic that they i mean they were not used
2: uh... yeah um so it's a, it's a bit hard because it's actually not always possible to show that, that many of the hand axes were used. You need particular preservation conditions and evidence mm-hmm. to actually demonstrate that something was used. Uh, so we rarely get that. On the other hand, um, there are examples of things that look like they couldn't have been used. Um, these are very rare, but there's to be like this really giant uh, hand axe, like the, the length of my forearm, you know, mm-hmm. that somebody made. And in our imagination, it's pretty hard to come up with a functional reason to do that. Um, so it seems to have been somebody showing off or just trying to produce a piece that is somehow appealing to them or something like that. Um, yeah, it's 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 elusive. Um, there are these, these glimmerings of it.
0: So we've already mentioned a little bit the uh, possible relationships between tool use and um, and the development of human neuroanatomy. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about that, like what some of the leads are and what is the evidence directly for those connections? I know some of it has to do with just like correlation of timelines, right?
2: Right. Well, I mean, so there's a basic awareness that we've had for for a long time that, you know, there is a broad general trend towards brain size increase over human evolution with many exceptions and side branches and so forth that we're discovering now. Um, But yeah, I mean, our brains are bigger – than any of the brains were two million years ago so, and there is a trend there also you know the tools over time with many exceptions and places where it didn't happen and so forth but the most uh, uh, elaborate and sophisticated tools around 100,000 years ago were much more complex than the most elaborate and sophisticated tools that were around two million years ago so there's a trend there and they there's two trends side by side and you know like think maybe they're related to each other. Um, now, exactly how they're related to each other is a, a more difficult question. You know, did the brain get bigger, and for other reasons that then spill over into being able to make tools, or were the tools really important? Uh, so that like, if you could make a, if you're a little bit faster at making a tool, more reliable at making a tool, you had a little bit of a reproductive advantage. Then you know, then 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 maybe the tools drove it. Um, and those are hard to uh, discern, exactly. So that's why we, we try to do some of these uh, experiments where we relate uh, the actual process of making tools. We try to figure out, well, what does it demand uh, cognitively, neurally? If there were pressure on being able to make these tools, these are the things then that would respond to it. Uh, so that's we're just trying to sketch out some of the basics still at this point, I think, to make that
0: link. And to do that, you've done some research with uh, neuroimaging and and how that relates to thinking about tools, to making tools. Could you tell us some more about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, we've done a, a couple different things. Um, one is what most people are probably more familiar with, which is uh, functional neuroimaging, which uh, – typically works somehow related to, to blood flow in the brain, uh, responses of neurons uh, when they're active. Um, and so we can isolate those areas of the brain um, that are more active when you make a particular kind of tool. You know, for instance, the hand axes that I was talking about versus the earlier, simpler, old one style tools. And we can say, oh, well, this is the neural system related to these forms of cognition um, that is required to do that. So, if there was something that changed in the past associated with this technology, it's most likely to be those systems. So, uh, then the other thing that we do is actually uh, structural stuff, um, and that comes in two flavors. Also, you can uh, uh, you can look at uh, plastic changes in the brain that are caused by. Uh, behavior and this is something that in the past I guess about 20 years or so people have really become aware that even over short periods doing things like learning to juggle actually changes the physical structure of your brain uh, especially things like white matter uh, that sort of the cables that connect things in your brain um, and so we've applied that also to stone tool making uh, and seen that training to make hand axes for instance will increase certain white matter pathways in the brain uh, Interestingly enough, these are also white matter pathways that are larger in modern humans versus chimpanzees. So we know that it's something that has evolved in our history, and we can relate it to a behavior that also is observable to have come along at a certain time in our history. So we started to strengthen those sorts of inferential well. Maybe these things are related to the evolution of that pathway. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, The other thing that we can do uh, that we're really just starting to look at is uh, individual differences uh, in structure and function uh, of people. So if you get a large enough sample, there are small differences, for instance, in the the rapidity with p- which people learn, uh, different kinds of stone tool making, you know, and you can then correlate with starting differences in their brain structure or the way that their brain changes over time. And I think that's really exciting because we can then also relate that to, uh, cognitive tests. So, you know, some of the, uh, initial, uh, stuff that we're getting is, you know, so if you're particularly good at, uh, 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 planning, for instance, there's a, a task called the Tower of London, which you move sort of rings around on three pegs and you have to do it in a particular order. Uh, if you're good at that, you learn stone tool making faster, hmm. slightly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I think that's really, really fast because we're actually making these links between particular cognitive operations and ty- types of stone tool making that we can see in the archaeological record
1: now now the, the test subjects uh, who learned how to make stone tools and then you saw the, the the changes in the brain um were were any of them engaged in any activity that was comparable to stone tool use or construction like carpentry or anything prior
2: uh yeah um so we actually have uh uh data on that that we haven't analyzed yet. We had people write about their other hobbies and activities, and actually we've got a big pile of stuff we've still got to go through on that study. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, sort of anecdotally, uh, I do know that there were people from a bunch of different kinds of professions. Like, we had teachers. We did have one sculptor in the project. And uh, so there, we don't yet um, have any uh, hard conclusions about that because uh, we need to work with the data. But one general impression I got that was a little bit counterintuitive is that that if you have more experience with some of these things that you might think of as being, you know, conducive to knowing how to make stone tools, it can actually interfere if you're sort of set in your ways. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so – but there's a lot more to be done with that. And one, one of the things that, that it bothers me is we always do these studies, you know, with the, the typical uh, college undergraduates mm-hmm. and uh, – they're not generally known for being particularly good with their hands um, <laughs> right. so uh, um I, I would really like to expand into uh different populations and different ages and uh,
1: but you know we're we're just getting started okay yeah, because that's you where know. you would find individuals who were say skilled uh, uh, craftsmen craft people in other sk- in other areas right yeah
2: yeah yeah and just uh just people that are uh, uh, more commonly doing work with their hands mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know um I work with uh, people out when we go do excavations in Ethiopia and the afar. Um, they, you know is, is there's are pastoralists so they have herds of animals and they, they, you know they make little walls out of stone all the time and they, I mean they, they're a lot more handy. <laughs> they might pick it up a lot faster.
0: So obviously getting the population you want is one experimental challenge. I would imagine another one if you're if you're trying to do neuroimaging, while people are engaging in tool tool making, they, I mean, don't you have to hold still, say for fMRI? Yes, for
2: fMRI you do.
0: Um, so there is, you know, a couple
2: kinds of workarounds. Uh, one of them is the 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 uh, the earliest studies that we did, you know, about eighteen years ago or more. Now uh, we used a technique called FDG PET, um, and positron emission tomography um, is something they don't use a lot for research anymore. And, Kind of brain activation. But one of the things that it lets you do is we uh, injected a radiological tracer uh, into their bloodstream. And this is a glucose analog. Uh, and so it's taken up by basically hungry cells in the body. like They think it's glucose. Uh, it happens in the brain and neurons. Um, and then it uh, emits radiation. Small amounts, but uh, <laughs> this can be uh, this can be detected by you know a sensor array around the head. So basically, you can give somebody this injection, uh, have them do anything you want, really. Like they could run around the block, and but uh, we have them sit in a chair and make stone tools in an unconstrained way. Then you walk them over to the scanner about half an hour later after they've been doing this for half an hour, uh, and uh, you collect an image of where the glucose built up. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Um, So this is great because you can do it um, and have them do real tasks outside the scanner. um, But it's limited because, uh, you know, you've got time averaged over half an hour and you can only do a couple of different conditions because it does involve radiation exposure and you don't want to give anybody too much. And uh, so, you know, um, the fMRI you mentioned, you have to be still, but we can take advantage of the fact that. It's a little theoretical, but neuroscientists have uh, largely converged on the idea that one of the ways we understand what we see other people do is to internally simulate it ourselves. Uh, in fact, using the same neural systems, uh, and this is probably an important way that we learn from others as well, which is an important research question too. But we can take advantage of that, and we show people films of tool making in the scanner. And so this is most directly relevant to observational understanding and learning from other individuals. Um, but it does pretty much use overlapping systems with execution, and we've shown that. Uh, so that's another sort of workaround. Uh, and a, a colleague of mine, uh, Shelby Putt, is using something called uh, functional near-infrared spectrography. I think it. <laughs> uh, F-nears, anyway, is what I, uh, what I remember. Um, and that actually uses... Uh, Near infrared, visible light that can penetrate the cranium and get some information on blood flow from superficial areas of the brain, and that you can wear while you're doing something as well. Uh, so there's some uh, a few workarounds that you can do uh, to actually use neuroimaging techniques.
0: Now I wonder, um, are there? I, I don't know if anybody's looked at this, but would there be differences in the brain between um, doing doing a task and stone tool creation and simply imagining the task because of all, you know, we've looked at, on the show a bunch of times about simply imagining doing something is very similar in the brain to actually doing it.
2: Yeah. Um, so it's uh, similar in very interesting and important ways, but also different uh, in important ways and particularly in the context of stone tool making where some of the things that were interested in are the actual skill to really deliver the right amount of force to the right place, Uh, um, we want to actually tap into that somehow. Um, We did do an experiment, though, um, in which we were more interested in the uh, uh, – kind of planning aspects and the evaluation aspects and we had just people looking at stone tools and answering questions about what would be the good thing to do next which is basically asking them to mentally imagine and simulate the actions and you tap into different aspects of the task demands there so we can use both but the, but there are aspects of
1: stone tool making that are very reliant I think on actually doing it All right we're going to take a quick break but
0: we're going to jump right back in with our interview All right, we're back. Just recently, I happened to be reading a couple of papers in, um, I think, uh, Frontiers in Psychology, I believe, uh, about the possible role of – Possible role of tool use in the development of consciousness. Uh, the, the the idea under this new framework was that maybe consciousness has something to do with creating states of objectivity in the mind where you can sort of like uh, imagine and correctly judge the properties of an object that is not yourself. Um, I, I don't know if you've read Is that anything. Matt Rossano? No, that, uh, this was uh, – Oh I'm sorry I can't remember the guy's name but he he's from Europe somewhere I think he might have been Maastricht okay
2: yeah I don't I don't know that but uh, um yeah I mean there are potential uh, links between consciousness. This is great for me, actually, because I, I told you how I you know, got into this. I thought I wanted to be a philosopher and all oh, this. Right. Really con- I'd love to get around to consciousness. They say, you know, wait till after you have tenure, maybe wait a bit longer than <laughs> that. Uh, you know, <laughs> wait till you're all done. Um, but uh, I do think there is a potential that there there might be some way we could gain insight there. Uh, you know, if you think about what are the things that actually require consciousness, mm-hmm. like what is consciousness actually good for? Um and you know, some people have said basically nothing. Right. Uh, That'd be phenomenalism. <laughs> you know, yeah. But but uh, if there is something that it's good for, it's for tasks that require attention. I mean, that's what consciousness is: it's attending to things, uh, really getting the whole brain on board, uh, you know, and focusing on on this one thing. Um, and I think that uh, uh, learning a skill like stone tool making is the kind of thing that demands that concentrated attention. And if consciousness is the way that you get that if consciousness is the feeling that you have when you fully attend to things then 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 maybe there is a relationship there i mean some of the other things people you, know, you can uh, as you know you can get into a car and uh, uh, start thinking about something else and drive to work when you meant to go to the store and so forth, which is, you know, this sort of zombie stuff is pretty scary, actually, Mm -hmm. the things that you Mm -hmm. can do uh, without being aware of it. Um, But things people can't do are sort of sustain, hopefully, conversations like what we're having here, (laughs) uh, you know, the stay focused, um, very skilled activities. I mean, if you were like a race car driver, you wouldn't, drift away and think about something else. It demands your attention, it demands consciousness. Um, So I think when we pick up tasks in the past um, that required people to really focus and attend, um, we might be picking up things that are diagnostic of the need for conscious states.
0: Of course, one of the interesting things about tasks like that, like work with your hands, is that it requires a lot of consciousness when it's new to you and over yeah. time requires less and less.
2: Exactly, and that's why, you know, unfortunately, we we really have to focus on studying uh, uh, people who are learning um, rather than, you know, expert performance is, is still interesting in many ways, um, but if you want to get at the real demands for something like conscious attention, that's going to happen when you're figuring it out. Later on, you know, I, I mentioned this to so some of these people that can make a hand axe really well in like, you know, 12 minutes, they don't have to think about it at all. Um, someone like me, I have to attend to it, so much that what always happens is I, you know, I, I give demonstrations of napping, and then I will always wind up cutting myself because <laughs> I'm trying to talk about it and do this, you know, and, and you're not focusing on it. Um, so yeah, the more skills you get, the more you can ignore the low-level stuff and think about something else, you know, like making it a really
0: appealing hand axe versus just trying to get something <laughs> that you can use. Do you happen to find that the most beautiful hand axes are also the best to like the the most functionally useful or, or are those things generally aligned or not aligned? You'd be surprised
2: the things that we don't know about stone tools uh, because of the amount of time that it takes to do proper experimentation and actually test these sorts of things. So that's something that people are interested in, but there's only been a handful of experiments um, that actually looked at, you know, is the symmetry of the hand axe make it a more or less effective butchery tool? Um, Does the straightness of the edge matter? Um, Do any of the things – do the thinness of it matter? Uh, And – to the extent that it's been shown, like the things like symmetry don't seem to really matter very much for the function. Uh, the, uh, uh, the evenness of the edge does seem to be important, and that might be aesthetic uh, for some people. Um, the uh, sort of extreme thinning of the hand axes that we find very appealing, uh, I think because it's hard to do, uh, is something that— you know, maybe somewhat beneficial because the the tool you're carrying around is lighter. Um, But thus far, there's not a lot of uh, evidence that things we think of as really aesthetically important about hand axes are particularly
0: functionally uh, important. So this is another question we may not know the answer to. But do you think in general, is is it more widely assumed that people in the uh – uh, prehistoric times would make a hand axe and, and that would be their hand axe and they carried carry it around with them? Or is it something that would be made on site when it was needed?
2: Yeah, I mean I think it's important to uh, – for archaeologists and for everybody to, to remember when we think about the past that this is a huge amount of time over a large area. You know? um, and they probably did just about everything at one uh, time or another. Um, I at some sites where you're sitting close to raw materials, uh, you know, like there's a site of Boxgrove. It's it's pretty close to these chalk cliffs where the the flint is coming right out. Um, they seem to have used them lightly and discarded them probably made them pretty close to the time that they were going to use them and that sort of thing. Um, elsewhere they may have actually carried them around for when you don't, don't have as much rock you know, and you're going far from the source. You probably take the hand axe with you and when it gets dull you resharpen it and all these sorts of things. Maybe you keep using it till you've whittled it down the way we do a you know, pencil nub. You know. uh, so this is an area people try to understand um, basically the economics. This is sort of an economic question. Uh, you know, when does it makes sense to just toss the hand axe versus, you know, carrying it with you and resharpening it. And uh, it seems to be driven by the things you would expect it to be driven by, like distances from raw materials and the kind of activities that you're doing.
1: So you probably get asked this question a lot, uh, especially this year since it's such a milestone year for the film. But um, we recently talked about the about 2001 A Space Odyssey on the show. Um, what are your thoughts uh, about 2001 space odyssey specifically of course these scenes of uh, these uh, these a- ancient uh, uh, creatures uh, uh, engaging in tool use for the first time
2: yeah, well, uh, I mean, as you may you may be aware, that 2001 was actually uh, 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 produced in consultation with uh, archaeologists and paleoanthropologists, so it was informed by uh, current uh, uh, speculations, hypotheses about the origins of technology at, at the time. Um, I think that uh, we have a, uh, a different view now. Um, I think if you would ask most uh, most archaeologists uh, about the origins of tool use and technology they get very excited about things like uh, cooperation and collaboration mm-hmm. uh, as as being a real turning point for for humans and we are a very cooperative species uh, and this makes a lot of things possible whereas that vision um, was much more about the importance of uh, killing each other uh, and the <laughs> sort of you know the the, the killer ape uh, mm-hmm. basically and if you want to take a, a step back from that there's a lot of my my other colleagues in, in anthropology and other disciplines who might Point out that these things are heavily influenced by our own uh, social views at the time mm-hmm. about what's important because some of it you is know, uh, myth-making about human origins and what we think human nature is. And After World War II, it seemed pretty obvious we were all about killing each other. Uh, right now, we'd like to think it's about cooperation. Uh, I don't want to get too heavy on that because there actually is uh, 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 empirical – there are empirical arguments that, that can be made about this in particular uh, looking at comparisons across species and the importance of cooperation. Uh, cooperation versus competition in different contexts so there is a framework for uh for doing this but uh it is interesting to think about our biases but our, certainly 2001 fantastic film i like i wish the uh this introductory segment were a little bit quicker because i like to use it in my classes but we have to sit there for like half an hour <laughs> 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 and My students aren't up for it um yeah I, I, so i think it's a uh, they did their best to
0: work with the current understanding at the time it's a great movie this is another realm where we might ask you to speculate if you're comfortable. But uh, one of the things we talked about with 2001 was the idea that uh, you know, so when the uh, the ape-like creatures first encounter the monolith in the in the savanna. Um, they they are changed in some way, but it's often assumed that maybe the, this is some alien technology that goes in and changes something in their brain. Uh, but an interpretation we talked about in the episode is one that that's actually not what happens. That what happens is they see this object in their environment that is nothing like the rest of their environment. It looks completely artificial and that simply seeing that spurred something in their imagination that allowed them to – to take up the tools, um, and th- that makes me wonder about what 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 would you imagine could be the role of simply seeing things in the environment to inspire the taking up and creation of tools.
2: Yeah, I mean that's probably uh, uh, probably very important. Uh, I, I think this is the kind of thing that uh, that archaeologists are. Uh, uh, loathe to actually talk about because you're talking about like, uh, you know, individual acts of invention, um, that happened in the past, whereas the sort of the record that we have is this really, really high level averaged sort of, sort of thing. Um, so it's hard for us. I mean, but clearly, you know, we shouldn't forget that these things are inventions. They're not like mutations or just inevitable things that happen. Like somebody at some point had a new idea and did it and then whether they were inspired by particular things in their environment uh, we like to think about well what kind what were the kinds of things that they commonly encountered and we could have some leverage to talk about that you know if they moved into a bit of a of a foraging niche then they may be around these animal bones you know if there are stones available Uh, if they crack nuts um, occasionally as chimpanzees do you're going to accidentally fracture the rock and and you know you could imagine, imagine an <laughs> aha moment there, um, but those are th- things that are very difficult to actually get to. Um, what I, what I will say about the, uh, the vision in, uh, in two thousand and one is that it is uh, an idea of a transformative moment. Um, and this is something that was also very current, and, and maybe is to a certain extent the idea that the invention of the earliest stone tools should be some kind of transformative great leap forward that you know that changed everything. And that doesn't seem to be the case, actually. I mean, we now have one site at 3.3 million where they made stone tools. The next one is at 2.6 million. With nothing in between. Uh-huh. Now we're going to find eventually something, but it's not a lot. It didn't like take off and go crazy, and, and even at the two point six, there's just a few, and it's not around two, two million years ago that they start doing this regularly in a lot of places. So there's this huge long period of time where they're like, yeah, stone tools, may, maybe You could do it sometimes <laughs> when it's worth it. I don't know, and, and uh, so it wasn't like this sort of you know gun that
0: went off and everything changed, which is a different perspective than what we used to have. Well, it thinks it makes me think about even today in in modern society you know you have a new business that has a new type of product and it's always losing money at first right Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, it it makes me wonder if yeah were these things um, more trouble than they were worth to begin with and how if that's the case how would you get through that you know how would you trust it to keep making them
2: yeah i mean it's hard to say i I think you know my my favorite sort of pet hypothesis right now is that yeah it was just too too hard in particular uh the investment in learning how to do this uh you know they did. They, they, these were smaller-brained individuals. They didn't have the same learning capacities that we have. And for whatever at the time, I think there was too steep a cost. I mean, occasionally it seemed worth it, um, but only a few individuals would learn, and, and then they had to spend so much time figuring it out that you know it was didn't really give them that much of an advantage. And then it was just lost in a small population, and nobody did it for however long, you know. Um, but uh, you go on long enough, and there may have been some selection either on the uh, the tool making or on other things that they were doing eventually lowered the costs for them a little bit. It wasn't quite such a stretch to be able to do this, and that's where you have the chance of it actually paying for itself, and then it would take off. Um, So that's currently—because when it does take off around 2 million years ago, it's very close in time to the appearance of Homo erectus, which has a larger brain and body. So, eh, you know, coincidence, uh, but (laughs) they messed around for a long time until something changed about the cost-benefit equation, I think.
0: Yeah. So many tantalizing mysteries. I, know. <laughs> yeah. I
1: I'm just imagining these sort of mini dark ages uh, yeah. in, in their learning, huh?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you think of these small groups, very isolated, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, somebody could have a great idea and then, you know, they have a bad year and everybody dies and nobody thinks of it again for 500,000
0: years. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. We keep asking you to speculate about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, th- these are the kind of questions we love to ask. But yeah, I mean, obviously... People should understand that there, there are tons of limitations on what we can know empirically about things this far in the past. So besides what we've talked about so far, what else do you find most fascinating about studying Stone Age technology? Like what, what really gets your gears going about it? I mean I I guess
2: uh one thing maybe it's a bit uh a bit technical we 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 started to talk about the uh the relationship between uh stone tool making and language and mm-hmm. uh one of the ideas that we discussed is that uh, it created selective pressures a benefit for being able to communicate better which eventually led to language but there's another idea that uh uh that there's a more direct connection between toolmaking and language because they might depend upon some of the same cognitive and neural systems, right? Uh, So this is an old idea, you know, relating to the idea that there's kind of a syntax of action, that the way we structure uh, sequential actions is similar to the way we structure words in a sentence. In fact, words in a sentence are sequential actions. Uh, so there's clearly some really important differences, um, but there's also the possibility that some of the systems that we use just to put together complex sequences of actions and toolmaking are also important to language evolution. So that if you had selection acting on toolmaking, it would provide a foundation from which then you could get language evolution. And you know, uh, some of the work that we've done generally uh, uh, supports that idea that there is overlap, particularly in what people call uh, broca's Area of uh, the inferior frontal gyrus, uh, which is related to language processing, but also uh, uh, to putting together complex actions of other kinds. Uh, and so, currently, what we're working on is uh, actually putting in people in the scanner, or showing them videos of tool making, have them listen to language. Uh, we use uh, computational methods to to parse the structure of the language and the structure of the tool making, and we see if the kind of the syntactic structure that we see in the tool making and in the language produces the same responses in the brain. And, uh, that's not done yet, but so far we have some encouraging results along those lines. So this, this idea that, uh, uh, basic action sequencing and statistical learning that you would have for putting together complex actions provided the foundation for language evolution is something that I would like to continue pursuing.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, if you, even if you just think about your experience, in there there are ways that putting together a sentence can sometimes feel somewhat analogous to step-by-step activities with the hands, like the way that, uh, you know, if you're used to speaking or if you're used to doing an activity, it can happen like we were talking about mostly unconsciously. But then there are those moments where you feel you're maybe ready to break the sentence or something and you slow down and it becomes more conscious. Um, anyway, that's just what made – that made me think of.
2: Uh, Very much so. Uh, uh, Morton Christensen is another colleague of mine that's written a bit about the concept of language as a skill. Um, And you think about it, uh, I try not to think about it while I'm speaking, and that's the point. (laughs) Um, Because if you're attending to exactly how you're enunciating the words and so forth, you lose the thread of what you're trying to say. So you need to be able to very rapidly translate sort of a high-level intention into very particular motor actions. And then when you talk to me, I have to very rapidly translate Translate what you're saying into sort of a a loose summary. I mean, I can't remember exactly what you said five minutes ago, but hopefully I have a general idea of what we've been talking about, uh, and so this is skill. It's, it's just like when you uh, a famous example is you know skiing down a, a mountain slope. I mean, initially, if you don't know what you're doing, you're focused on how you're positioning your feet and so forth. Uh, later on, you can ignore that and focus on you know skiing the slope, mm-hmm. uh, and and so your focus of attention moves. Um, and it's the same in language and tool making, and I think the neural systems are related to each other.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like how if you uh, I think they're actually even studies of this that if you focus too consciously on say like shooting a basketball you get worse at it Mm. yeah yeah exactly you experience the flow you you have to uh, you have to you have to automate a lot of it yeah well dietrich this has been so great thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you i really enjoyed it all right so we hope you enjoyed our conversation with dietrich stout i know robert and i did um, so if you want to follow up and check out any of the uh, the centers we mentioned, like the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture, that's cmbc.emory.edu, but you can also uh, We'll put a link to that on the landing page for this podcast. You can also check out the Paleolithic Technology Laboratory site at scholarblogs.emory.edu slash stoutlab. And then there was one more thing that uh, Dietrich emailed me about. Uh, so he talked in the interview about the role of sound hmm. in tool making, and uh, so he sent me actually a link to a study where you can be a participant in trying to it's a study where they ask you about your experience with certain types of you know like playing a musical instrument or something like that and then uh, you get to listen to different stone napping sounds and estimate the size of the chip that was produced by the sound you're listening to oh nice or I guess not produced by the sound but that the sound was correlated with
1: uh, we'll make sure the link uh, for that is on the landing page as well. Uh, and the landing page for this episode, you will find it at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's our mothership. That's where we have all the episodes. That's where we have uh, links out to our various social media accounts. That's where we have our tab for our store where you can uh, purchase some merchandise with our logo or something related to a particular episode. It's a great way to support our show. Uh, but if you want to support our show in a way that doesn't cost you a single dime, just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. We're talking Apple podcasts or even uh, our Facebook page. You can rate us there. People have been giving us uh, some nice ratings there and, and uh, you know, all of it helps the, uh, the all-powerful algorithm that rules our lives.
0: Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other uh, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, stuff like that, you can email us at blowthemind at